As we come to Exodus chapter 7, chapter 7 stands as sort of a hinge chapter to the book of Exodus. In this chapter, we, we begin to see, remember we talked about last week, and, and, and all of the weeks prior, the promises that God continually repeats to Moses. The promises that God gives to the people of Israel, and they are continually repeated to them. Well, in chapter 7, we begin to see the promises of God move to the action of God. That now God is putting action behind the promises that He gives. God is indeed going to carry out what He says. And it's interesting as we we look at how many times God reassures Moses that I am going to deliver my people, I'm going to be with you. My power is going to be revealed. We looked at Exodus chapter 6, 6 through 8, uh, the programmatic, how God is going to work for Israel. Time and time again, he gives Moses those promises. And we think to our own life of how often we need to hear the promises of God anew. Again, And again, and again. Because it is through God's promises that we are able to navigate through life. It's through God's promises that we are able to interpret the uninterpretable things that are taking place in our life. Not that we understand them, but we cling to the promises to guide us through them. Here we see in chapter 7 that God begins His plan of redemption for His people. But in order to do this plan of redemption, in order to claim the people of Israel for His own, we begin to discover in chapter 7 that He must first defeat the false assumptions of humanity. And in doing that, he must defeat the false idols that humanity bows to. And the reason for that is because our God will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. God does not share precedence with anyone or anything. He is the creator of all things. And God is going to reveal Himself. He's going to reveal Himself first and foremost to His people. That they will know that I am the Lord God. But God is also going to reveal Himself to the pagan Egyptians. That in my redeeming of my people out of Egypt, I am also going to show these people that there is only one true God. There is only one God who is above all of the others. So as we enter this new section of Exodus 7, we begin to see in this, in this story that God begins to introduce himself to Pharaoh now, not just in name, but in action. Do you remember 
in Moses' first encounter with Pharaoh, going all the way back to chapter 5. Just look with me at verse 1. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And look at Pharaoh's question in verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. That question, who is the Lord, God is going to answer. And we see that begin to unfold in chapters 7 through 12 of the book of Exodus. So this morning, we are going to once again look at God's, not only His redeeming promises, but His redeeming action in the lives of His people. And we are going to see that starting in chapter 7, that God is declaring war on Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt, just as Pharaoh is declaring war on the one true God. And as God redeems His people from the slavery in Egypt, so God has redeemed us from slavery to sin. Let's say together our key theme that we have been talking about throughout this entire series. Let's say it together nice and robust. Get your vocal cords ready, all right? Let's go ahead and put it on the screen because we're all going to focus not on our memorization but on our, our robustness. Okay, you like that word? Let's say it together. Only God can rescue and redeem. From here on out, God is going to show this in action. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the Old Testament. Father, it is through Your acts in the Old Testament that we truly come to understand Your acts and the fulfillment of those acts in the person of Jesus in the New Testament. Father, what you have for us this morning is so vital. Father, as we look at this theme of a cosmic battle, Father, so many times we face the pressures of life, we face the pressures of a world system of thinking and of doing things, and we feel that pressure upon us, and we know as Christians we, don't, we quite don't fit in. Lord, we thank You that we know that You have the final word. Father, the very things that we see You do in Egypt, Lord, we see those things in its pattern done again as You are redeeming and rescuing Your people from a world full of sin. Father, we thank You that You are our hope, that You are the one we cling to. I pray, God, this morning that You would strengthen our faith. God, I pray that as we study Your Word this morning that, that the gods that we 
the God's quote-unquote that we become preoccupied with, the idols in our life, Lord, that we would throw those down knowing that you do not share your glory with any other. Father, that you are our only rescuer, our only redeemer. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts this morning. Thank you for the privilege it is as your people to come and study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. As we look at this cosmic battle that Exodus 7 really through 15 give us, we look at the first 13 verses this morning as an introduction to this cosmic battle. And this morning, we are going to look at the divine promise. Yet again, God promises and assures Moses with very specific things. And then we also will look this morning at verses 8 to 13 at God's divine introduction to the person of Pharaoh. We're going to glean some lessons this morning for our lives. And the first thing we're going to look at with this divine promise that God gives Moses is God promises Moses, in essence, this. Moses, I'm going to establish you. You are now going to go in a very intimidating situation and I am going to establish you, yes, even before the most mighty ruler on the face of the earth at that time. In verse 1 of chapter 7, Don read this. We're going to just read this bit by bit as we go through the text. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet You see, God promises to establish Moses, first of all, because he is God's representative. I will establish you. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. His calling was to represent God before a pagan empire. To represent God before someone who was equated with a God, Pharaoh himself. And as we look at this text, we must realize that we have a calling as well as God's representatives. God clearly says to Moses, I want you to realize this, Moses. See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And other this word see, it's the same word that would be used of seeing something visually, except it's not just seen with the eye lenses, it is seen and comprehending with the heart, with the mind, with the soul. You see, Moses was called to represent God, and man, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where, where the Bible says that, that man, that Adam, was made to be God's image bearer. He was made to represent God on his creation. And we, too, are God's image bearers. We represent God. When you go to work, When you come to church, when you are parenting your kids, when you are are living with your spouse day to day, are you mindful of the fact that you are God's representative 
to that individual that you are interacting with? Do you realize that like in the case with before Pharaoh, Moses was the only, the only picture and example of God before a pagan ruler? You may be the only representative of God that you are used by God in that person's life. I said that really confusing, didn't I? You may be the only one that is, that is to represent who God is and what God does and the truth of God and the love of God to a person. It's really interesting that that word like you see in your English translation is actually not there in the, in, in the Hebrew. It literally reads, he says to Moses, see, I have made you God to Pharaoh. Now the sense is, is what we have in the English, like God. Of course, Moses was not God. But in Pharaoh's eyes, man, seeing that person was just like seeing God. What a privilege for Moses, and yet what also a responsibility You see, Moses bore God's image before Pharaoh, and so do we bear God's image to a lost Egypt around us, do we not? The text also says, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and then he says, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. So Aaron would be God's spokesman. Aaron would be Moses' spokesman as Moses had the message of God. And then in verse 2 it says, You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. So not only, again, is Moses called to be a representative for God, but both Moses and Aaron are called to be spokesmen for God. This was a complete divine message. This was a message from God. He doesn't say, hey, Moses, Aaron is going to tell you, uh, tell Pharaoh whatever thoughts come out of your mind to get the job done. Whatever reasoning, whatever logic works, tell Aaron that and he'll go do it. No, it says that he shall speak all that I command you. Listen, God's Word is active. It is powerful. As we go out to a lost Egypt, we are declaring the words of God, not our own insights and how can we package this in in the best way and how can we make all the, the glitz and glamour of this message. No, we share God's truth. You see, the promise we see in verses 1 to 2 is, Moses, I'm going to establish you. You are my representative. I'm going to make you like a god before Pharaoh. And in so doing, the words that you speak, the words that Aaron speaks, are going to be my words. But not only does he give Moses this divine promise of, of being established, but secondly, God promises Moses, and again, these are right on the heels of him going once again before Pharaoh in his court. Moses, mark it down. Here's the second promise. I will reveal my 
glory. Listen, when we exalt God and we put self second, when we, like John the Baptist, he must increase but I must decrease, listen, that is giving God the glory. I wonder how many of us today are trying to be God in our lives and therefore we are relinquishing the rightful glory that God deserves. You're trying to be God in your children's life. You're trying to be God in your circumstances. Are you trying to be God in your own life? Or are you letting God be God? Because listen, if we are willing to let God receive the glory, listen, God receives the glory in all the ways that we don't think God would receive the glory. I mean, if we're going to say, most of us would say in our hearts, yes, I want God to to have the glory. But just like in our own and God's working in our lives, we say, but here's how God is going to get the glory. This should happen, and then this should happen, and then this should happen. And God says, no, because that would be you getting the glory that it's in your own preconceived mind. Let's look in this text how God is going to get glory. Verse 3, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Is that encouraging? I mean, poor Moses, his knees are knocking, right? You mean I got to go there again? Uh, the kids aren't here to, uh, this morning. They're at Gospel Project. So I remember we went to, uh, uh, earlier this year, uh, I had my two-week uh, classes in Louisville, and, and I told Rachel, I said, you know what? We've, we need to get away when I get back because uh, my brain's fried. You, you, you guys have been, Rachel's been parenting without uh, without a second parent, and we're all tired, we're all exhausted, and I found a really good deal at Great Wolf Lodge in the Pocono uh, area. How many of you have been there? Okay, pretty cool place. Um, well, the kids, you know, they're enamored with, with the, the size of everything, uh, but what they're not too enamored with is some of the sizes of the water slides and the rafts you get in and all of that. And, you know, Timmy's getting to the age now where, you know, I'm, trying, I'm kind of being the mean dad, forcing him to do stuff. And we'd go down some of these that are scary, um, you know, and, and, and he goes down and there's that sense of relief. And I'm like, all right, let's do it again. The line is short. He's like, what? Can you, I mean, it's almost like this is Moses. I got to go back to him. He just took the bricks away. And I need to, I have to go back? And not only do I have to go back, but you're telling me that you are actually going to harden Pharaoh's heart? You're going to make him not listen to the words you're giving me? Does that make sense to anybody here? But listen, God's ways are not our ways. You see, God receives glory even through the hardening of hearts. As Paul says, And as it is said in Jeremiah, can can the vessel say to the potter, why have you made me thus? What are you doing? Can we question God's ways? You see, in our minds, verse 3 and 4 seem very counterproductive. Counterproductive. 
And God has already in chapter 4, verse 21, told Moses that I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. He's not going to listen to you. He reemphasizes this now. It's also interesting to see that God here is being God by saying, hey, I am actually going to be the one to cause Pharaoh to reject my word. I am hardening his heart. It's interesting that this, this same word for hardening, if you flip over to chapter 1, verse 14, talks about Pharaoh. It says, and he made their lives bitter with what? Depending on your, what your translation says, the ESV says, with hard service. You see, the, the parallel here is that, that Pharaoh, who feels that he is God, he inflicts a hardening on God's people. The hard service of slavery. And God says, no, 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 Pharaoh. I'm God. And I am actually going to harden your heart. You see, this hardening, this providential hardening, it manifests God's sovereignty. That we don't understand all of the ways of God, but one thing we know is that God is in control. God is sovereign over every heart, and He will soften hearts, and He will providentially harden hearts. In fact, in Romans chapter 9, Verses, verse 17, I just have that on the, on the overhead for you. It says, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, Paul writes, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, I am setting up my own obstacle so that people will know that I am the one true God who will overcome any obstacle. Only a sovereign God can do that. And we also see Pharaoh's responsibility as well. God hardens his heart, but it is Pharaoh himself who personally will not listen to you. Verse 4 says... This leaves Pharaoh without excuse, though it is God who is ultimately the one who is doing the hardening. You see, folks, we can all say, and, and at the end of the section of Romans 9, uh, chapters 9 to 11, at the end of chapter 11, Paul says, oh, the matchless ways of God, they are past finding out. In other words, we can't get into God's mind to know how he does everything, but yet God is God. And he's a sovereign God. And I would dare say that just about every one of us in this room would say, you know what, I believe that God is sovereign. But then when it comes to us living, Sunday, through Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, that we really struggle believing in God's sovereignty. You see, true theology is theology that not only knows with the head, but knows with the heart and submissively lives according to that theology. You see, God will receive glory in even, even the most unseemly of ways. He receives glory through hardening, but not only that, but God receives glory through judgment and deliverance. 
Again, in verse 4, God continues. He says, Then I will lay my hand on Egypt. So after Pharaoh's heart is hardened, he refuses to let the people go. It is then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. How? By great acts of judgment. Same thing that Exodus 6, 6 says. So God's glory through judgment and deliverance, we see how He is going to redeem His people. It is through these two facets, through judgment and through deliverance. He says, I'm going to lay my hand on Egypt. And I find this this so interesting that if you go back to chapter 3, verse 8, Again, we see these parallel ideas, kind of like we saw Pharaoh. He hardens the people's service, but it is God who hardens his heart. Again, we see the same parallel uh, in Exodus 3, verse 8, where uh, God says, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it goes on. What is God now saying here in verse 4? That I am going to deliver you out of Pharaoh's hand by me personally placing my hand of judgment on Pharaoh. We're going to have an exchange of hands. And listen, folks, there are situations in our life that God sovereignly allows us to go through that there is no way out. And he does that sovereignly so that we will see the hand of God in that situation. Do you want to be a weak Christian? Then keep running from adversity. Let God be God if it really is true that only God can rescue and redeem. I will lay my hand on Egypt. He says the Egyptians, what's the result in verse 5? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them, They shall know. You see, God was going to stretch out his hand exactly again what it says in Exodus 6, verse 6. And through that, a pagan nation is going to know that there is indeed one true God above all others. It's interesting that as we look at a greater Exodus that, that was yet to come, In Isaiah chapter 19, verse 21, it talks about, it says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship and sacrifice uh, with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. In other words, here, God is making himself known to Egypt through judgment. But one day, the day will come when the Egyptians and all the other nations will come to know the Lord, not only in His judgment, but in His saving grace. 
Folks, that's the age we are living in now as the gospel has gone to the nations. It is not just for Jew, it is for Gentile as well. God is doing a work of an exodus, an exodus from sin, an exodus from the system of this world that culminates, that that reaches its fulfillment when God makes everything new. Folks, that's our hope. That is our promised land. You see, God will do this through judgment, but then he also promises deliverance that at the end of verse 5, God will indeed bring out the people from among them. So God receives glory how? He receives glory in the oddest of ways through actual the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. God receives glory through his judgment and his deliverance. But listen, God also receives glory how? Through our obedience. Are you living a life that is giving glory to God through your everyday obedience? Listen, it is so easy for us to say theoretically, you know what? I would die for my Savior. If persecution came to America, I think I would give my life for God. But then Jesus and His grace in seeing our hearts as only we can see it, can, as only He can see it says to us, I appreciate that. Now, are you willing to take up your cross daily and follow me? I mean, how many of us would say, you know what? I would die for my kids. I would die for my husband. I would die for my wife. Well, how are we treating them? Every day. That's where the question of our heart is. You see, we give God glory through our obedience. Look at what verse 6 says. Moses and Aaron did so. In other words, they did. They gave the message that God had them give. They did just as the Lord commanded them, it says in verse 6. It's even more emphatic. Um, Literally, this could read, and Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Thus they did. The emphasis on they did exactly what God said. Simple obedience. And then in verse 7, we find something very interesting. What is the context in which this obedience takes place? Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. They weren't young bucks, were they? It's interesting that Psalm 90 verse 10, David writes, The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. How many of you here are over 80? Fanny, we got you back there. Gene's not here today. He's over 80, isn't he? Anybody know? Maybe? Yes? Okay. We have a few that are over 80. So, so boy, God is really blessed by, by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Life is hard. But the average life, it says, is 70 if God really blesses 80. 
And here we see Moses and Aaron obeying God at 80 and 83. Did you know that Deuteronomy 34 verse 7 at the end of Moses' life? Note what it says on the overhead. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. You may say, okay, well, Pastor Adam, are you saying that if I obey God, that he's going to bless me to be 120? Maybe you do want that, maybe you don't. That's not what we're saying this morning. But what I do want us to get across when we look at God's glory coming through obedience is that we never have the right to tell God when he's finished with us. Never. There can be a temptation in churches to say, you know what, I've put in my time of serving the Lord in this church. It's now time to let the younger people do it. Listen, we are never done putting in our time when it comes to serving our Savior. The, I, the, the takeaway that we should uh, come away with, with from Deuteronomy 30, 34 verse 7 is that Moses is a prime example that God is going to give us the grace, the energy, the strength to serve Him until we have fulfilled the purposes that he has for us. Listen, that could happen at 35 and we go home and we get in a car accident and and we're killed. But that could also happen at 95. The ways that God uses us through the years may change. But the fact of God using us, if we are a child of God, does not change. Some of the greatest prayer warriors are those that are stuck at home because physically they can't get out of their homes. And that is as mighty a work of God, if not mightier, than going around ministering physically to all sorts of people. Listen, this morning, are you withholding glory to God because you are simply not being an obedient child of God? Maybe you're, you're, I mean, you're living your own life and, and you're young and, and, and you're without excuse and, and you're just, you're not giving glory to God. Maybe you're older here this morning and you've been caught up with the mentality of, man, I've put in my time, it's time for somebody else and God's saying, hey, I'm not done with you. The goal of a, the Christian life is not retirement. The goal of the Christian life is laying eternal investments until the day he calls us home. We give glory to God through obedience. And our time is just about done. But as we look at this cosmic battle that is about to ensue, we see not only the divine promise. What has God promised? I will establish you, he promises Moses. He promises that I will reveal my glory. And then we also see number two in verses 8 to 13. That as we now change scenes and go to Pharaoh's court, God gives a divine introduction of who he is to Pharaoh and to his royal court. You see, we see in this divine introduction that just 
As God said, he is true to his word, and the power of God is revealed. Look at what verses 8 to 10 says. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, so again, he's given Moses a heads up, this is what's coming. Prove yourselves by working a miracle or a sign. Then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. Here we see that that this is a precursor to God's might. In other words, God is just giving a little sample of the great might that's going to be displayed to Pharaoh and to Egypt. Have you ever been to the food court lines at the mall? And, you know, you get some of that, that really good uh, Chinese or Japanese chicken. It's just a sampling of what they have to offer. How many of you like? Man, after we eat lunch and if we're at the mall, I'll still go through the sample lines. And sometimes I'll be like the Dunkin' Donut guy that used to go like this. You remember that? Anybody? I'm not that old. Come on. Anyway, he's giving a sample of what he is going to do. This is a precursor to God's might, and and our time is quickly ending, but I just want to read this statement to you. I think it it is so good. Uh, Listen, because it won't be on the overhead, but one individual says this. Listen closely. Exodus 7, verses 8 to 13, defines for the reader the true issue at stake in the entire Exodus struggle. The hostilities are not primarily between Moses and Pharaoh or between Moses and the Egyptian magicians or for that matter between Israel and Egypt. Get this. What the serpent contest portrays is a heavenly combat. A war between the God of the Hebrews and the deities of Egypt For the biblical writer, the episode was a matter of theology. It was a question of who was the one true God, who was sovereign over the operation of the universe, and whose will would come to pass in heaven and on earth. That is what is at stake in chapters 7 through 15 of this story. It is a matter of not just events, but theology. And God is giving a precursor of His might. He makes an ordinary staff become a serpent, which again is a hint that God is going to attack the deities of Egypt because the snake was a royal image in Egypt. You remember their their hats, their crowns, with the little snake head, the cobra head? And not only when you get to what the culture of the day thought about serpents and the image that that portrayed, but you go back to the biblical story and what does God say in Genesis 3.15? That there is a battle of the seeds. The seed of God and the seed of the serpent. God is at war with the deities of Egypt and ultimately Satan himself. 
And then notice what happens in verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and again, we have that obedience. They did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and guess what? Voila, it became a snake. The power of God was revealed, but listen, not only was the power of God revealed, but the greatness of God was revealed. Verse 11 Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and they, the magicians of Egypt, also they did the same by their secret arts. You see, this greatness, verse 11 tells us, was imitated. It was imitated. So Pharaoh sees this serpent going around. And remember when Moses in chapter 3 at the burning bush, he threw down the serpent? And you remember we kind of made a joke about it. It's almost comical. It says that like he he fled, he ran away when he saw it. (laughs) Not so with Pharaoh. Pharaoh is this robust man. He's wanting himself to look powerful. And what does he do? He just calmly calls his cultic host, his priests in essence, And he himself, by this action, is challenging God in this battle. Okay, God, let's see your strength. I can match it. This is the coming to terms of this battle that will ensue. You see, by acting as God did, this royal court and Pharaoh was seeking to evidence the same type of power that God himself displayed. And it says by their magic, their secret arts, the, 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 the rod did become a snake. It says, verse 12, for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. Listen, there is a real power in this world. Listen, the, the philosophy and, and the mindset that of this world system and what teenager you are hearing in your, among your friends and the, uh, what's coming to you through culture, there is a seeming power and strength in that. In a being on the inside uh, with all of these other people who are they're just behind their times, they don't quite get it. There's a seeming power and a strength to have your best day be every Friday, as some of those books, so-called Christian books, read. There's a seeming power and a strength to the pull of the world that if we are not careful, we can become deceived to that pull. We're going to talk about this a little bit more uh, in weeks to come, but the the plagues uh, of, of, of Egypt... The pattern that God sets, we see a parallel in in the the judgments in Revelation. And just as we see here in Exodus that there is power at work, there is an ability to, to deceive, there is a power to deceive that we read of in Revelation. You see, we see parallels throughout the Scripture that tells us that this story is one cohesive whole. It's not little divided up different stories. You see, they imitated this greatness, but note at the end of verse 12, God's greatness could not be overcome. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Folks, we have three minutes. But there is 
that sentence can be the most easily overlooked sentence in this narrative, but how powerful it is. Can you imagine the scene that God's snake, Aaron's staff, literally is there swallowing whole the snakes of Pharaoh's court? Can you imagine the look on their faces You see, folks, this is a greatness that cannot be overcome. Listen, we can go looking to the world system for answers. We can go looking to fulfill the desires and the lusts of the flesh to somehow bring fulfillment, but nothing will until we realize that it is God who cannot be overcome. It is God who provides fulfillment. It is God who we need in our lives. Maybe you are busy right now listening to Pharaoh's magicians and seeing, well, they are getting some results and we've forgotten the one true God. But then as we conclude in verse 13, we see something else in this divine introduction. God's, first of all, God's power is revealed. In his power being revealed, verses 11 to 12 show us that his greatness is also revealed he eats, or the snake, God, uh, Moses' rods, the snake eats the snake of Pharaoh's magicians. Then we see that in this divine introduction, this power and greatness of God is rejected. It says in verse 13, still, in other words, man, despite all of this, despite it, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Notice that's in direct correlation to what God already said. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. His heart was indeed hardened. And he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said. We see here that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This is already, just in these seven chapters, the third mention that Pharaoh will have a hard heart and now he does have a hard heart. And his eyes cannot see the truth of who God is because they are veiled in pride. And he does not listen. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Pharaoh refuses to listen. But yet, as we are reminded, those last five words in verse 13, God is in control. All of this is as the Lord had said. Folks, who are you looking to as your rescuer and your redeemer today? Maybe this morning you are here and you have played all the religious games. You come to church. You you try to look good in front of people. And you know in your heart, man, you are a captive. You are a slave to sin. You You are without, without the cleansing The cleansing sacrifice of Jesus, it has never been applied to your life. You are serving the gods of Egypt, so to speak. And maybe today for the first time, you need to look to the one who is the redeemer, who is the rescuer. Maybe you're here today and man, you're, you're a follower of Jesus, maybe for a short amount of time, maybe for a long amount of time, but guess what? You've been allured by the gods of Egypt. 
you're looking at the fact that that rod does indeed turn into a snake and maybe that's going to be more fulfilling than what God has to offer over here. Just like when, God, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, there's a better plan out there. You need to once again humble yourself and not be like Pharaoh who refused to listen, but humble yourselves and come back to your Redeemer.